0: I'm your host, Kurt Sladel, and today we're going to be talking about grief and the source of grief, which is death. We've all encountered death, but what is death, really? How would you define it? I believe any ending we experience, whether the ending of a career, a dream, a relationship, or what have you, every kind of ending is death. And so any ending we go through comes with a grieving process, a journey through grief. And out of all the people I know, I think my friend Tom Wright knows that journey the best. So let me introduce you to him and his story. Well, thanks for being on the show, Tom.
1: I'm glad to be here, Kurt.
0: I think ever since I've known you, I've always been struck by the story you told me about losing a child. And I know that there are things in your life, even right now, you know, that are going on that you're acquainted with grief. So would you tell us, about the death and the experiences you've gone through and the grief that you've had to journey through.
1: Um, Well, the first real shocking, upsetting uh, experience of grief was in the loss of our son Gabriel. He was uh, six, almost seven years old. Uh, He'd been our child of promise. Interestingly enough, there's a whole story surrounding how God promised that he was going to be coming before he was even conceived. And so we thought his life was going to be absolutely miraculous and he was going to be a world changer and all those things. So when at three years old, just after his third birthday, he was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia, we thought there was some terrible mistake. We thought it was attack from the devil, which, you know, who, who knows all those things. And so we walked through three years of treatments And uh, there's a lot of life lessons that came from that, a lot of growth that happened. There's some beautiful times of of intersection between heaven and uh, and Gabriel's life that were powerful. But when you draw a line between denial and hope, it's a very fine line. Mm -hmm. Because you have to keep hope alive. And denial, you know, it was right in there. So it was like a month and a half before we lost him that I just, I just went into the kitchen one night, late one night, and I just said, God, I need to know what's going to happen here. I don't want to have false hope. I want true hope. And I know true hope and denial you know are separate things. I don't want to just be believing certain things because I think that's the way it should be. I want to know what you're saying. Hmm. And I was down on my knees and, uh, in the kitchen, and I just got a picture. God gave me a picture of life without Gabriel. Mm. and it just about destroyed me. But that strengthened me And because I, all of a sudden I realized, okay, this is where it's headed. I, it's not a lack of faith that I have. I have plenty of faith. I mean, we had so much faith that the pastors in our city, three of our pastors, Mike Sparrow, Bob Crane, and Jim Boyd, all went down to the morgue after he passed away, believing that they, could, they would be raised from the dead. So it wasn't a lack of faith. Uh, we had faith. Pastors had faith. There was meetings that they had every month just at night with the le- level of intercession and Gabriel was right at the top of the list. He was the focal point of the church for a while and mm. so we thought miracles are going to happen. Then when it re- when we realized that miracle was not going to happen and uh, we lost him and we were in a church that was not positive confession kind of thing, but really just believing faith. And so by, by faith, you know, these miracles happen. And so we felt like failures.
2: Mm. I
1: felt like I had the word failure stamped across my forehead. It was devastating for the whole church to lose Gabriel. And um, we uh, stayed at that church just for a little while longer, and then we just couldn't take just people looking at us. And, and so we uh, we left. And... I was leading worship at a couple other churches since then, but we were surprised by how very, very long the whole grief process takes. Mm. And, you know, grief isn't just a matter of Mm. losing a person, it's a sense of complete loss and that place where you just don't know how to make sense of your life for a while. William Bridges wrote a book, which is very helpful to me, called Transitions. And uh, my friend recommended it, and uh, he uh, he gave it to me, and I put it on the shelf. I never had read it to eight years later until we lost Gabriel. Mm. And what he said was, you know, a transition is what it feels like, is like you get into a boat, and you start across the river. And as soon as you're in the middle of the river, you see the dock you're heading for break away and float downstream. And you figure, no, no problem. I could just turn around and go back where I was. Well, you turn the boat around and you head back and you see that dock break away and float in that stream. And now all of a sudden you're caught in midstream. You can't go to either side. And he says, you just have to wait. There's no way that you can force for that new beginning. He says, every transition begins with an ending and ends with a beginning. Mm. That's what grief felt like. And we thought, you know, we had heard, we'd read books. You know, t- after two years, you know, you're, you're doing Okay. It took seven years. We saw one mark s two, but then we didn't really fully begin to experience life, you know, with some semblance of joy until seven years later. Wow. It just takes a long time. So we have just learned to be patient. When people are suffering with through something, you just can't force it. You can't force them to say, snap out of it. You can't force them just by saying, have faith, because they have faith. They're just devastated. And that devastation, it takes a while for the new beginning to come, but it always comes. And a man man by the name of Clayton Barbeau, he compared it to holding, he was holding a rose in his his hand. And he says, you know, people want to force themselves into a place where they think they should be. People want that rose to bloom so quickly that they'll try and force it open. Mm. And they'll destroy it in the process. You just have to wait. And, you know, it's a matter, it's a place of trusting God. It's a place of saying, God, I'm here. You know what I'm feeling. You know what I'm experiencing. You know how just devastated I am. You know how sad I am. You know how I don't, can't make sense of my life right now. You know, it's just, it's just waiting on God, saying, God, my eyes are on you.
0: In that seven-year journey through grief, what were some of the seasons of that journey?
1: Trying to do something to push yourself out of it. First thing I wanted to do is I wanted to buy a boat and sail around the world. My wife told me I was crazy. Uh, I wanted to get a get twenty you know, twenty four foot to thirty foot sailboat and I was yeah, you know, I wanted to sell the house, buy the boat and just go away. Hmm. And she says, You you're nuts, don't do that. There's temptation to affairs. Because hmm. something fresh and new always seems to take take uh, want to replace something that's sad and, and broken. Um, so there's temptation to sin, there's temptation to numb it with with alcohol or drugs or you know, there's all kinds of temptations to deaden the pain and deaden the suffering, trying to pull yourself out of it. But it's that is not productive, and we knew it wasn't productive. And so Terry would encourage me; she, I would encourage her. She would be devastated. She, her, her, her faith was was struck. Our both of our faith was struck, and um, it took a while for us to uh, kind of begin to see any kind of joy in life. But one of the beautiful things I have to say. After losing after losing our son, was that we, all of a sudden it seemed like heaven was in, in a much closer place. Uh, I don't know if it's because our own flesh and blood you know uh, had passed away and his spirit was now at the throne, but the colors of of, of the of the sky and the leaves and the uh, flowers and were deeper and richer, as if they had taken on a more heavenly hue. And so that was also part of the process. It was like we were, we were gradually coming into uh, a place of, uh, of newness, and, and it was just so slow in coming. One of, one of the powerful books that we read in the, in the process was uh, A Grief Observed by C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Mm-hmm. He was really encouraging mm-hmm. to just not make idols out of the one that died and not create altars of things that just need to fall away.
0: When you say make an idol of the one who died, what's the temptation there?
1: We had a lady in our church who, um, she had lost her baby and had in, turned the bedroom into a complete shrine. You know, you can do that. not Maybe not so obviously, but you can create the fact that your child was perfect and he wasn't. And so you can you can kind of build things in your mind that are delusional.
0: What do you think the danger was, And that for her to create that kind of shrine and make her baby into an idol.
1: Because her identity was tied to it. Her identity was the only child that she'd ever had. And she wanted to be a mom. And this was her validation. I am a mom. Hmm. You can tie your identity to, you know, your children. A lot of people live vicariously through their kids, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. When. When you were talking about sailing around the world, what was it you were escaping from in you?
1: Loss. Um, Looking around the same house where our son had lived, and knowing that his room was no longer, you know, had anything to do with him. Knowing that our lives had shifted forever, and uh, just everything felt dead. Like it just felt like everything was dying around us, and I wanted to do something that had life and adventure. Mm. Uh, another thing that happened was we had two older daughters. in, in coping with my grief, I just buried myself in work, and I, and I neglected them. And they, and when in their teenage years, about you know five or five or six years later, actually it was ten years later, they finally confronted me on, on just the damage that I had done by by just walling myself off them because they were grieving too. And they needed me, they told me, they needed me and they needed Terry to enter into their grief and not just deal with our own, help them with their grief. And so we had gone to this one conference and where my both my daughters confronted me particularly, mm. saying, Dad, you weren't there. You. Uh, it was a really highly confrontational conference, one of the most life-giving conferences we've ever been to. It's called breakthrough and uh, momentous ministries and and so our daughters really confronted us you know we, we needed you, but you went there for us and I'll never believe that you will be again Wow and so they had the pain their pain was really deep and so we had to acknowledge that that and acknowledging the damage that we'd done to them just tr- trying to cope with our own we we you know we had been the what looked like a very typical go to church on Sunday family, with you know my my wife and me and, and two two girls and a boy. And when the little boy died, it just threw this huge monkey wrench. The cancer just destroyed what had been that little peaceful little family, and had we each gone to different places to deal with our grief. And ten years later, in 2000, uh, we had gone to a conference, and uh, that conference was. Very confrontational, because it forced you to get out of yourself to reach for someone else. And because we were so used to our own self-protection and our self-protective devices that we developed to cope with our pain and our grief, that life was no longer really possible. I compare it to putting on a you know, helmet over your head, and uh, it protects your head. But you can never feel the touch of, of your wife's mm. hand running through your hair because you've walled yourself off from all emotion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you can't just build a wall for pain. When you build a wall, you build a wall. And so love can't get through either. And that was what's transformational in this conference, was they, they challenged us to live for love and to just just let go of our self-protection and trust God with all the pain. Yet that, that His shield was enough. We didn't have to construct shields of our own.
0: You're reminding me of something that God has been teaching me in this season. I've talked about it a few times because it's just so powerful for me. But it's that story of God revealing himself to Moses in the desert. He's in the wilderness, grieving mistakes he made, you know, forty years earlier and, and God shows up in this burning bush that doesn't isn't consumed by the fire. And the first thing he says to Moses is, "Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground." And for the first time in the season I'm in, God revealed to me something pretty profound: was that those sandals represented cushioning and protection.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That wearing those sandals, Moses didn't vulnerably feel mm-hmm. the danger of walking on desert ground. Mm-hmm. His feet were protected so he could run ahead. Hmm. And that the only way that he would be sensitive to God's presence was if he vulnerably felt the reality of where he was.
1: Wow. it's really good.
0: And that's what I hear you saying, Tom, that God was challenging the cushioning, the walls that you had built, that kept you from being vulnerable to, to the realities of your situation, and only there, in that vulnerability, would you be sensitive to find the touch, the love of God breaking through. That's right. Like, I hear grief is these stages of, you know, uh, anger and denial and...
1: What is that? Dabda. What is that? That's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Her uh, the, the stages of grief are uh, denial, anger, uh, bargaining... Depression and acceptance,
0: mm.
1: and we rotate through those. Everybody goes through those two stages at different different times. And
0: and so, what, you said you walled off. Why did you wall off from God in the midst of that?
1: Because, and and this led to the probably the deepest breakthrough of my whole Christian walk. I felt that like I, I must have offended God because with the miracles that happens. We know we're down. We spent lots of time at Children's Hospital. And some kids dead went into remission, and they walked away. Other kids passed away. And uh, we thought, of course, because our child is a child of promise, because God was with us, and we were trying to encourage everybody else in the hospital, You know, of course our child was going to make it, and he didn't. And so I figured, what did I do wrong? How did I screw up God? How did, how did it not work for me? Why did it work for other people? but it didn't work for me. And I I spent 12 years trying to figure out what went wrong. And I I didn't trust God. I just figured, I'm not going to pray anymore because you're going to do whatever you're going to do anyway. There's no way that anybody could have prayed more for our son than we did and our whole church did. But you did what you wanted to do anyway. I I was mad at him.
2: Hmm.
1: I don't understand God. I do not understand. And in in 2002, I had uh, heart surgery. I had a broken heart. Imagine that. And uh and after surgery, uh they told you you can't do anything for six weeks. You can't lift, you know, anything more than ten pounds. Because your chest has been cracked open and so I was sitting there in my easy chair and I was honestly just bored out of my mind. <laughs> Thinking of I uh, I couldn't work, I was off work and there I was just sitting there and then, you know, I was just all I could think of was Two things, two options. One was a book by Brendan Manning sitting on on the on the coffee table called Abba's Child, and the other was pornography on on the computer. And so I just said, uh, can't go there. So I picked up the book from Brendan Manning, and um, and I opened it up and, and I read uh, this just short phrase. It says, uh, "God is love. Jesus is God. If Jesus ever stops loving, he will stop being God." Mm. And I had just read a passage about Peter where it said that Peter was not afraid of Jesus after he he, uh, betrayed him. And he ran to him because he knew him. So I just figured, well, I've been trying for 12 years to figure out what I did wrong. I wonder if I could just run to Jesus on the simple fact that he'd never reject me. Hmm. With all my pain, all my brokenness, all my questions, all my angry accusations at him, I wonder if I could just run to him? And in that moment, I couldn't run because you know, I just tried surgery. I mean it, it, it was a virtual run. But I, I turned to God and I just said, "Okay, God, I'm going to run to you." And, and it was the moment where was Jesus was right there, just about smell his robes. and they were the color this just blew me away with the color of dried blood. They weren't, they weren't white, they were the color of dried blood and in the middle of just bawling my eyes out because he was right there. He said, look up into my eyes and tell me what you see. And I looked up into his eyes and I saw this amazing burning fire. But it wasn't a fire of judgment. It was just the most passionate love I'd ever seen. I could ever even imagine just piercing me through it. I realized it wasn't just for me. It was for every person. The whole, in fact, he was so closely connected to the whole, every being on the planet. It was just a moment where the love of God just came alive, and his eyes just pierced right through me, and I realized, I'm the one that's been cold and aloof. I'm the one that's been putting up walls. All he ever wanted was to just hold me. In, in my brokenness, in my pain, in my sorrow, in my grief, in my anger, he just wanted to hold me. He wanted to hold me close and let me know who he was and that he would never be any of those things that I accused him of. Because when you're grieving, you just get all kinds of contorted pictures of God, that he's a vivisector. That's one of the things that C.S. Lewis said, a vivisector. You know what that is?
2: Mm-mm.
1: It's someone that dissects another person while you're still alive. And C.S. Lewis accused God of being a vivisector. And I, I, I echoed that sentiment. It's just like you're tearing me apart, God, and I'm still alive. But I realized that God could never be any of those things that I ever... Had accused him of being. It was my flaws and my brokenness, my cold heartedness. All the things I accused him of was with me. And I just melted. And I just, for the first time, I, he loves me. He really, really loves me. And I had that deep interior understanding for the first time in my whole Christian walk that I didn't have to do anything to earn his love. It was like, it was just like, the King of Kings was right there in that room, and I bawled for an hour—the the pain, the bitterness, the anger, the, just agony. And my wife walks in from the other room, and she just sees me just going through, going nuts with tears, bawling. And, and I don't cry pretty. I mean, some men, of uh, God can weep, you know, and they just—they weep, you know. And you just see that they have gentle emotion and they're manly. And I live. I, right? I, I am contort. I contort my face. Gets all twisted. I turn bright red. I do not cry pretty. And I was just, I was a blubbering mess. But in that moment, it was was so transformational for me. And I'll never forget it.
0: I believe this. I've heard it. That anger is a second emotion. Where would you say your anger came from? From what other feelings?
1: Feelings of rejection. Feelings of not being good enough. Feelings of... uh, my sins have caught up with me, and there's a reason that you're not blessing me because you know, I, I, don't, fit the, I don't fit the right qualifications for blessing. Yeah,
0: And that sounds to me like the definition of shame, mm-hmm. which is I'm something wrong. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Good distinction.
0: And the beautiful thing that I hear in that story is what shame really is, what anxiety is. What worry is, is sin. And what sin is, is what's missing. I used to say sin is distrust, which Mm -hmm. is true. There's a deeper layer to it for me now. And the distrust comes from this place of what's missing. I distrust God because I'm missing something that I've never experienced before. Darkness is an absence of light. It's not anything, right? Mm -hmm. And sin is an absence of something. Mm. It is an absence of love. Mm. And so, in the shame and in the anxiety and the insecurity, we're missing a deeper experience of God's love.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And all God wants, and this is your experience, is for us to let him into those places where his love is missing. All he wants is to come into those places and fill it with a new experience of His love. That's the the 18-inch journey, right? It is. From head to heart. Yes. is that we learn about God and it's important to learn about who He is in Scripture and through other people. It's in, that head knowledge is important.
1: But it's not knowing.
0: But it's not the fullness of, no, of it's knowing. It's
1: not, yeah.
0: It comes through experience. Right. Death is itself is really just an absence of life. And it is in these moments when we walk through death and we walk through endings. All endings are death. Like the death of something, whether it's a career, a, a relationship, dreams, hopes, right? The hope that your son was you know, going to change the world. He would make a difference in the world. It's it's those deaths when we walk through those and invite God in. If we feel those things vulnerably and we let God in, we have the greater sensitivity to His love. And we're the ones who wall off, as you said. And when we let Him in, man, it, it changes everything.
1: It changes everything. And the yeah.
0: deeper experience of His love than you've ever had before, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's what I hear in your story. And I hear the invitation.
1: What is the invitation?
0: The invitation is always to be vulnerable and let him in. And now I see these things. What's missing is an invitation to let God in for a greater experience of his love. So shame is now an invitation. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is now an invitation.
1: Failure. Is now Failure is now an, an invitation.
0: invitation. Yeah. And God's saying, come close. Mm-hmm. And it's Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. And I will give you rest. Exactly. And it's in that moment that Moses is with God. You know that he experiences God's presence. That he gets a taste of that as he takes off his sandals and walks vulnerably before God. And later on, he wants more. And he says to God, "Show me your glory. Right? Show me your presence. Think of the circumstances." for Moses and the people he's leading, for Israel. They're just coming out of slavery in Egypt. Slavery they've been in for 400 years, more than 400 years. And even though God is leading them out into freedom and the end of slavery, it's still an end of something. And still, like every other ending, it needs to be grieved. It's a death, and there are times... Where they want to go back because they're used to being slaves. And stepping into a new era is uncertain. And they want to go back to the familiar, even though it was terrible for them. And this is the moment that Moses cries out to God, Show me your presence. If you're not going with us, right? Don't. Send us up from here. We're not going without you, God. Without your presence. What was God's response? My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Hmm. For me, I I missed that part of the promise for years, and I held on to the the promise of God's presence and tried to carry that myself, tried to power my way into God's presence and missed that it comes through rest. Mm-hmm. and the way to get to rest is just to open up and let them in. And when I try to power through it, I'm building walls because I have to prove something. And there, again, it's the sense of failure that that comes from, and God is saying, no, the sense of failure is an invitation, the shame is an invitation for me to come into what's missing. Mm-hmm. And so I confess all the time now, Tom, I don't know your love like I want to. Mm-hmm. I'm missing things. And the infinite God of love mm-hmm. always has a new layer of love to, to share with me. And so now I look at it as all these things are the, are the indicators of an empty gas tank.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what do we do with an empty gas tank? What do we see it as? An invitation to go fill up or else we we're going to stop moving forward really.
1: We, we need constant renewal because you know, although God has uh, pulled us through, we have many stories in each of our individual history. It seems to be the human condition that, that the past victories of God in our life are, are never as controlling for the moment as, as, as our present uh, uncertainties. <laughs> uncertainties. Uh,
0: yeah,
1: and so it's, it's like you know, it's just like God wants to remind us. That's why He tells us to build monuments. It's yeah. like I have come through for you again and again and again and again. And it is trust. And it is vulnerability is hard, mm-hmm. especially I, I don't know if it's easier for women, but it's very difficult for men to be vulnerable. Uh, we're taught not to be vulnerable. We're taught to be heavy in control. We're taught to have the answers. We're taught, you know, that we have to be leaned on. And that and so being vulnerable says, I don't have the answers. Being vulnerable says, I don't know where we're going. Being vulnerable says, I, I don't know if I'm up to this. Mm. You know, and, and confessing those things before God and saying, God, you're my everything. Show me what we do today. Yeah. Uh, next hour. Yeah. Um, you know, and so so just learning how to be fully dependent on your Heavenly Father is not an easy lesson to learn. No. Because so much has to be stripped away for you to be able to be in a position where you'll accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my son, uh, he, just before he, he was leaving for to go to the 18-inch journey. Um, um, <laughs> so he, 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 uh, he, That's a ministry? Uh, it's a ministry in North Carolina through uh, John and Melissa Helser. And uh, so he's, he's already being rocked. We just connected with him on Sunday. But they sat down and they asked. And they said, you know, okay, we have these questions that, you know, we're coming up with just as, as discussion starters for groups. And the first one is, what's God teaching you? in your life right now. And my answer was so their answers were good too, but my answer was acceptance. Uh, being older you have to you know, I, I, I grieve over some of the arthritis, I grieve over some of the things I can't do anymore. You know, I, I grieve over how tired I get sometimes but but there's an acceptance of I've come to a place of acceptance. God's teaching me to accept where I am. And that there's still plenty of things that are good about what he's doing right now. But it is like you just said. You know, you, you can't keep going back. You can't keep looking back. You know, you, with that that was then, and that was that was good. But but you, if you keep trying to live in the past, you know, you're not accepting all that's going on in, in the in the moment right now. So learning acceptance you know, is and goes hand in hand with vulnerabilities. It's just like okay, I am not 35. <laughs> I'm I'm 67. And sixty-seven is, you know, is getting up there. You are a good-looking sixty-seven. And, well, thank you very much, friend. sir. Thank <laughs> you very much, sir. Um, but uh, it's just like it's just like, you know, realizing okay, there's no temptation that has come to man. I'm not facing anything that other men haven't faced, and God's able to deal with me in this situation. All my wants and all my needs, all you know, all so.
0: Well, here's what's interesting in that for me, it goes back to the comment that you made about the woman who couldn't let go of her daughter, Mm. who built an idol. And I asked you, what's the danger in that? And you said she finds her identity Mm -hmm. in that. And so when we talk about acceptance, the core issue, and this is where shame comes in, the core issue is, are we experiencing God's acceptance Mm. in who we are? And are we accepting who we are? Because he is. I love these two pieces I've never noticed in the love chapter. They're like You hear it at weddings, First Corinthians 13. Yeah, 13 yeah. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast. Love rejoices with the truth.
2: Hmm.
0: And you go down further. We don't usually do this part in weddings or whatever where it says, I'm looking into a mirror dimly. I'm seeing things dimly, right? One day I will fully know is, here's the kicker. As I am fully known.
1: Even as I am fully known.
0: Love rejoices with the truth. Mm-hmm. I am fully known. Mm-hmm. Here's love. You are fully known and fully loved by God. He accepts you right where you are. Mm. And this is the thing that people have a hard time with between the Old and the New Testament that mm-hmm. I find. they like, the, the God of the Old Testament isn't the same God in the New Testament. Have you ever heard that before? But he is. But he is. He and is. here's the thing. We were different. They they put the focus on God and don't see the humanity with They had different. a different lens. They had a different lens. Your son, Sam, how old is he now?
1: 27.
0: When he was 5 years old, you treated him differently than you do now. At, you interacted differently with him at 5 than you do now at 27, right? hmm When he was 15, you interacted differently with him than he was when he was 5, right? Right humanity has been on this journey of growth for all of history that we've been around. And God has been there accepting us and meeting us where we are. Why does God look different in the Old Testament than he does in the New? Because man was different. Mm -hmm. And God was meeting him and accepting him where he was. And human beings, all of humanity, and each individual person, he accepts us right where we are always has and always will, no matter where we find ourselves. And all through humanity's journey has been a journey of grief over death. This is never meant to exist. And when we grieve death, God grieves with us because when we grieve death, we are acknowledging without even realizing in our emotions that this was never meant to be. Mm -hmm, You're right. That this is that we acknowledge
1: something's, something's definitely wrong with yeah. with uh, yeah life should not end
0: right and it is one of the biggest pictures we have that this world isn't what God intended it to be and people go where is God in all of this you know and and people who are atheists who identify as atheists anyway I think they're really it's not an intellectual argument with atheists I believe they're just wounded this woundedness below the surface they've never dealt with and they've blamed uh, God and so they decided not to believe in Him and the one that they feel most wounded by. But the reality is, when we grieve over death, it is one of the greatest indicators that this world is not what God intended. Mm -hmm. Because if death was meant to be a part of this world from the beginning, we would accept it. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We would have known nothing else or feel there is anything else. And so the journey of our history is coming to accept the fact that we are accepted by God even as we deal with the death we let into this world. Death is a constant reality. And so dealing with death is going to be a constant experience for us. And Tom, you've, you've wrestled mightily with death, the death of your son, and have come out with a greater experience of God's love. But I'm sure that's not the only experience you've had. So what are some other times you've wrestled with death?
1: Um, There was the following grief, I think, before uh, talking to you earlier about losing my father, which was a huge one for me. Um, Then there was uh, an altercation at a church that I was at, uh, you know, where I was uh, labeled as something that I wasn't and um, had to walk through that and uh, not knowing what people were thinking because there were some lies being told. Um, and so, um, you know, just knowing that certain people were believing certain things because they weren't inviting me into the conversation, they were just assuming that, that bad things being said about me were true. Very painful not to not be able to clear your name or... What you know? I mean, so but at that point also learning, God kept saying, you know, I I, I was I kept telling God, you're not defending me, and He goes, yes, I am. Mm. You don't know what level I'm defending you at this point. You know, I am defending you. I am in your corner. I am walking with you through this. You just don't understand how how deep a level I am. And so, learning to depend once again, coming back to identity, and identity is a huge thing in this whole process is who are you? Mm. yeah so so with this whole process of this going this is another extremely extremely painful thing to walk through as as a church, yeah having been part of, of of a church, and then all of a sudden being labeled as something that you aren't. And not being able to defend yourself. And learning what it talks about in the Bible about Jesus being of no reputation. And learning that your identity with God is enough. And that whatever men might say, or, you know, might applaud or, you know, disparage you with, you know, your identity is not in in the praises of men. Your identity is in, is, is, is concealed in the heart of God. And that—that's where your identity exists. And learning that has been a powerful lesson for me to not be shaken by all the stuff going on around. It's like you know, <clears throat> as if someone says you're 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 the most powerful speaker or you're the most powerful you know you're the most anointed minister. You know, your identity is not in that. Your identity does not exist in what you do. Your, exist, your identity exists in who you are in the heart of God. And learning that. All going. Well, I'm really glad we walked through that because that, that was extremely painful. It still is to some extent because I still see people in that from that old church and I don't know what they believe about me. Mm. And I know the stories that have been told. But knowing that your validation is with God, and and it finally happened one night. This prophetic person who didn't know me from Adam. Mm. I was I was in a big group of people, a lot of my peers there. And and he called me out, and and he he, he asked me to stand up, and he says, brothers, things have been spoken about you that are untrue. And I'm declaring a year of vengeance from God. And so I balled, because finally God is just telling me, I know who you are. I've always known who you are. And you're not who they say you are. And that was freeing, and realizing that God's identity, my identity in God, God's opinion of me, is enough mm. and praises of men mean nothing if I lose him mm. and the enemy will try and take your identity from you
0: that's his whole goal
1: that's his whole goal is to rob you of your identity as, as a chosen as a favored son of God as, as, a, as a wonderful beautiful daughter of the king to steal that identity and tell you that you're something less than you really are
2: yeah.
1: and so I, I think in the process of grief everything is gets stripped away except that, which mm-hmm. is most important.
0: Mm-hmm. And he's also trying to steal, and the core of it is he's trying to steal God's identity from us, because our identity is only reflected. Imago it.
1: Deo, right? As you said, we, we reflect the image of God and try to, trying to, to corrupt and destroy that image. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we don't receive who God is for us, his identity for us. If we don't receive it, we can't reflect it. Exactly. And yeah. so and well these, these different... Moments of your journey of gr- going through grief, what aspect of God's identity was revealed to you? The
1: four most precious words to me I am with you. Mm. No matter what you go through, no matter what corner you turn, no matter what suffering you're called to walk through, I am here. I am with you. Mm. That's who God is. He's the one who is with
0: me. And we're back to Moses at the burning bush. We are, aren't we? The moment where God is sending Moses to Egypt to free the slaves, Moses asks, Who should I say is sending me, if they ask? And God says, Tell them, I am. I am who I am. The constant I am. The one who is in a constant state of being. Being here with us, I am with you. I am always here with
1: you. Can you rest in that identity? Can you rest in Him in that?
0: Just the fact that
1: that you might not feel it, but will you rest in the fact that what I said is absolutely true because I'm not a liar? God says, I am with you.
0: You're speaking to me, Tom, because my Enneagram number is a seven. And sevens have a hard time living integrated in the present moment.
2: Hmm.
0: We're always wanting to jump ahead hmm. and see something is always better on the other side. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a seven with a six wing. So at the same time that I'm anticipating the future, I'm dreading it. And God has been teaching in the season the I am. I am here, present with you. I am the God who was, who is, and is to come. But right now, all you have is the present. Sorry. You don't have the past or the future anymore. You can't change the past, and you, can't, and you can't shape your future apart from me. I'm the one who is already abiding in your future. I'm, already, I'm in your past, and I can show you it from my perspective, if you ask, which does change the past, at least changes my perception of it, and brings hope in the midst of what was death. And I can show you the future, but it means first being present.
1: I think that's what's so powerful about um, the recovery movement, cellular recovery, that the things that we've learned through that um, is that true spiritual growth takes place when we're honest and vulnerable with ourselves and with God. And when we're not, when we just keep trying to form the outside, make the outside look good. Yeah, but the heart is suffering and broken and damaged. God wants to strip away all the the facades because mm-hmm. he goes right for the heart.
0: Mm-hmm. To show us that he's here. I am here. He is with here. With you present in all of these things. Yes. John, one of Jesus' closest followers, says, God is love. And perfect love drives out fear.
1: So, because
0: mm-hmm. fear has to do with punishment and judgment.
1: The ex- and and some translations say the expectation of punishment. Wow. Fear has to do with the expectation of punishment. In other words, you're expecting that things are going to go bad.
0: Here, here's here's something I'm wrestling with personally. This is not doctrine. This is just my personal processing on the idea of God's wrath, because it's very clearly in Scripture, God's wrath mm-hmm. on sin and and sinful mm-hmm. mankind, which is again sin is what's missing. Mm-hmm. So why does God's wrath why is God's wrath aimed at at people who won't let him in? And this is you know, it's it comes down to this. I can't remember what the scripture is exactly, but there's a scripture where Jesus says that hell was reserved for the devil and his demons his fallen angels.
1: Never created for man.
0: Never created for man. And this is where where when we buy into the lies of the enemy, that's all he has is lies. And he frames God and he frames us. And we buy into that we come into agreement with the enemy
2: mm-hmm.
0: and we come into alignment with him who is who hell is reserved for. And the God's wrath is set on. Mm-hmm. And we put and this is when we allow the lies of the enemy to align us with him, he uses us as mute shields, and he puts us in between like a coward. He puts humanity in between God and him, and the wrath of God that was meant for the liar and the one who who knew God and should have known who God is and his perfect love and walked away from it. The wrath that's aimed at him. We, we willingly walk into that path. Hell and God's wrath are never aimed, were never meant to be aimed at mankind. Mankind willingly walks into that path, and God is vulnerably walking before us, saying, Anyone who would come to me, anyone, let me direct you out of the path of destruction. Let me get you out of the way so that you are basking in my love rather than being a pawn of the enemy. And this is why it's so important to be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. because we meet the vulnerability of God. I am here Mm -hmm. for you. And I want to strip away every lie that you're believing about me and about yourself, every frame-up job the enemy has done, and you felt the pain of that, and we do it to God all the time. We, do. we agree with the enemy.
1: Yeah. And
0: God's like, but I am not stopping working for your benefit, for for those lives to be stripped away. Amen. And in this world we hint in a world of death and then he takes like you know, like that crap and uses it as manure to grow things. And grief, what I hear in your story is how the death and the crap of grief how God has revealed himself and grown beautiful things. And so my question to you is, your son who has prophesied that he would change the world, how has that prophetic word actually come to be? That your son and what he went through changed you in your world?
1: Um, You would have to have known me before to know that I was very religious. My faith was very formulaic. So when Gabriel past I had to throw my theology out the window and understand just you know um, that it's not about religion it's not about um, being right it's not about you know um, uh, you know the Word of God says this therefore that's absolutely true uh, and and I do believe the Word of God is true don't get me wrong but you know Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but you're unwilling to come to me. Mm. And, and it's these scriptures that point to me, right? And so that's what's transformed is like going from the letter of the law, from the letter of religion, from the formulaic kind of faith, though, um, to uh, just becoming God's child,
2: mm.
1: becoming his son. For Terry and I to uh, to just experience being sons and daughters, and just growing in our love and understanding of the Father mm. through Jesus, and so I've changed dramatically. I mean, I, I cringe at some of the things that I said in leadership early on, um, you know, demanding people you know put certain priorities in their life that were very religious but not right, mm. and so yeah. Because early on, I equated God and church as the same thing, and they're not. <laughs> amen.
0: They are not.
1: <laughs> they are not.
0: And giving you a very church response, amen.
1: <laughs> very church. You know, very churchy. How churchy of you, Kurt. So, yeah, so it's become more of a, an honest walk with God. Mm-hmm. And realizing he's big, I'm small, he's boss, I'm not boss. And I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. I'm very comfortable with with God being God and me not being God.
0: The Lord of love. Amen. That's the best boss I could ever ask for. That's right. Think of all the people in that growth and the changes through the death of your son who have been impacted by you, having been impacted by him.
1: I think that's very true. Because you know it says in Corinthians that it, you know you comfort with the comfort with which you've been comforted. Right now, my my daughter going through a very difficult time. She's asking me questions that, and she knows that I've I've walked through this particular kind of where people are saying bad things about you that aren't true, and it's encouraging for her in particular. I think because um, she's really suffering with it because she's such a good person. She's such a sweetheart, and and so, and so if there's things to be spoken about her that are just not right and just complete fabrications, and it's hurting her, yeah. you know, and she's finding out like we did who your real friends are. Well, after, after you know, you think you in, in a church of 1,100 people that the you know, majority of the people that that you know most some some level of, of, of you know, and you think that they think certain things of you, and you find out later that you never knew. Hmm. And you found out that your actual friends were two or three in that whole grid group. Wow. As, as uh, Rich Mullins says, you know, there's people been friendly, but they'd never be a friend. And uh, it was really was a shock. It was. Uh, I, we, we do have good friends, solid friends that have stayed with us through thick and thin, because they they know us and have trusted. You know. So well, it's, it's 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 a tough walk.
0: But yet, here's a daughter who once accused you of being walled off in your grief who is now coming to you to share your grief experiences with her so she can walk through this in a better way. I didn't see it like that, but you're right. Full circle. Full circle. Tom, so, um, I feel like it would be really an incredible privilege if you would pray for all of us who are grieving to close this out.
1: Mm. God, I, I just call upon you, uh, just know that people who are suffering through things that they didn't want, they didn't deserve, things that uh, are visited upon them, or that that are just stealing their joy and just causing them to just uh, think things of themselves that are less than true. In fact, they're just out-and-out lies, or I pray for them today, Lord God, that, that they have a revelation of who you really are in the midst, Lord God, of the fire. Lord God, died, that you're, you are the one that is sustaining them. You're the one that's carrying them. You're the one that's weeping. You do weep, Lord God. You do weep, Lord God. You're, you're not a cold-hearted God mm-hmm. who's separated from humanity. You are so deeply integrated with every human life. Every every animal, every tree on the planet, how much more so your children, Lord, all, all of us made in your image. I pray, Father God, that you'd give, give just peace and rest, Lord God, in the midst, Lord God, of the trial. That the lies of the enemy would fall on deaf ears, and that the truths of who you truly are, the love that you have, the power that you have to change situations, to work good out of evil, Lord God. I pray those lessons would fall on rich soil in their Mm -hmm. hearts, Lord. I just want to praise you, Lord God, for your ability to pull us through, Lord God, Um, from places that we are right now to places of hope and places of fruitfulness, Lord God, and places of, of that, yes, vulnerability. You want us vulnerable and you want us open with no uh, self-protective measures, Lord God, guarding our hearts and minds. You want us to just come to you, Lord God, in the midst of our suffering, Lord, in the midst of uncertainties, Lord God, to fix our eyes on the one that has the heart, the will, and the power to transform us individually and transform us corporately as the people of God and even a nation, Lord God. Mm. As as a, a servant has his eyes on his master, as a as a handmaid has her eyes on, on her mistress, Lord God, so we look to you. Lord. Our eyes are on you. And bless the name of the Lord. we Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks for being on this show for us, Tom. This is a huge blessing. Huge blessing.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Kurt.
0: We'll have you back. Okay. (laughs) hey before we go there are a few things you might need to know if you want to get a hold of us for any reason if you have questions you have concerns you want help with anything or you want to support what we're doing you can reach us at lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com We also have a Facebook page simply called Life Hurts, God Heals. You can like us, follow us, and then you can make comments or ask questions there. We would love to hear from you. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Take care.